Well, I invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, verses uh, 1 to 12, and then verses 16 through 18. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles available in the chairs in front of you. We're going to be on page 807, page 807 in those Bibles in front of you. Uh, This is a a text we started looking at last week, and we're going to be looking at it uh, again from a different perspective this morning, and then uh, uh, looking at it, uh, or concluding our time with the wise men and Jesus next Sunday. So I invite you to, to follow along with me. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because there are no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as your Spirit inspired this account to be written, May your spirit now carry that message to our hearts. Open our eyes, soften our hearts, strengthen our wills to listen to you and to follow your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this Advent season, we're in a series that I'm calling Seeking Hope at Christmas. 
And, and hope just it seems to be one of those qualities that just naturally rises up during the Christmas season. You know, especially kids as, as they're going through the Christmas ads and they're circling the pictures of every toy that, that they want to find under the tree or in the stocking. And, and there, there's something about hope that, that even after the, you know, the excitement of presents under the tree goes away, even as we grow up, there, there's still a hope that, that we want to find at Christmas. You know, maybe, maybe this year the kids will really get it. Or maybe this year the, the economy will turn around. Maybe this is the year that my health actually gets better and not worse. You know, for, for many people... The, the hopes uh, of Christmas just start to fade. I heard the, the comment made one time, there's nothing, nothing is over like Christmas. And that, why, why is that? Why is it that all of the hope and the build-up to Christmas ends up resulting in so much hopelessness after Christmas? Why is it that people don't actually experience lasting hope? Well, Last week, we, we looked at multiple reasons to say that, that, that Jesus really is the hope of the world. And, and yet, when you come to a text like this, and, and the, the way that it ends, that if Jesus is the hope of the world, why was there so much tragedy that happened in Bethlehem? Why, you know, that, that where was the, the hope that Jesus brought for families who, who lost children because Jesus came? And we, we have to see that, that there's a reason why that the good news of Christmas doesn't actually take root in the hearts of people. There's a reason why the declaration of the angels, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, doesn't actually be experienced in the lives of people. And, and that's true even for those of us who are Christians. We gather together, we, we sing the songs, we light the candles, and yet, even in our own daily experience, we find I don't always experience the hope of Jesus. And so this morning, I, I want us to look at, at the person of King Herod, because he heard the news of, of Jesus being born, and, and he definitely didn't experience the hope of Christ. So... What was wrong with Herod? And then I want us to say, well, when we see what's wrong with Herod, how does that help us to see what's wrong with us? And then I want us to see what's actually right with Jesus. Because when we see what's right with Jesus, then we're able to have be on a path to lasting hope. So first of all, what's wrong with Herod? Why couldn't Herod encounter the hope of Jesus? Well, it helps to know a little bit more of Herod's story. As you read through the New Testament, you'll, you'll encounter there, there's multiple King Herods. This King Herod was Herod the Great. And, and Herod the Great was not actually Jewish. He was Idumean. And in, in the, the history uh, of things, the, the people from Idumea actually came not from the tribe of Jacob, but from the tribe of Esau. So they were Edomites. And, and throughout the Old Testament, the Edomites were always a thorn in the side of the Israelites. And this is now the, the heritage of this guy, Herod. 
And, and Herod had uh, kind of come up through the ranks. He was a, a general and, uh, that, that won a, a, this, a, a sizable victory in the northern part of Palestine. There was a guerrilla uh, warfare that, that the, uh, there was a group of Jews that were waging, and, and Herod was able to come in, and he was able to squash this rebellion. And so then through uh, the political intrigue of the day, Herod makes his way to Rome and uh, gets uh, under the, the the favor of Octavius and Antony, and, and they invite him to this banquet. And Herod comes to this banquet, and at this banquet, he offers a sacrifice uh, at the Capitol, uh, and the Senate takes note of Herod, and the Roman Senate declares Herod to be king of the Jews. And so then Herod comes back to Palestine and he takes control. He ascends to the throne under the authority of the Roman Senate. One who had received his authority uh, because of his power and his intrigue definitely didn't receive it as a result of his birth. And so, so now Herod is, is, hears this news that there has been a king who's been born. He's been born king of the Jews. So we see in, in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. I mean, he, he's been working his whole life to get to where he is. That, that he has, through, uh, through murder and through intrigue and, and through political dealings, he's secured the throne. So uh, naturally, he, his, his security is being threatened by the arrival of a new king of course he goes into turmoil. Maybe there's, there's a note of fear that gets struck in Herod that the Jews have one who's from their own line. Maybe now they're going to band together and depose him. There's anger that, that may rise up within him because, you know, who, you know, who is this that, that can just come on the scene and just be, have, a, have a claim to the throne just because of his birth? And if, if Herod is troubled, that can't bode well for the Jews. So that's why we see in, in verse 3, all Jerusalem with him. All of Jerusalem now is stirred up because Herod is stirred up. That Herod uh, was so power hungry and, and so paranoid about the, uh, keeping his power that he even had his own sons murdered when he thought that they might be making a, a play to depose their father. So if, if Herod isn't going to tolerate assaults to his throne from his own family, how much less is he going to tolerate the news of some other king being born? But even in all of this, Herod wants to maintain this air of religiosity. He still wants to come across as this, this man who, who cares uh, about looking good and, and about uh, having the appearance of being on the right road. So what, what does he do when he hears this news? He, he assembles all the chief priests. Verse 4, he assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people and inquired of them when the Christ was to be born. 
that one of the things that, that Herod did is he, he really tried to, in many ways, endear himself to the Jewish people by, by participating in the whole Jewish religious system. That it was really under King Herod that the temple underwent one of its greatest uh, renovations. Herod began this renovation during his reign, and, and he made sure that it would continue even after his death. That the renovation that, that Herod began on the temple didn't actually get finished until after he had died. And, and Herod was, was really intent on, on maintaining the, this era of doing things by the religious law, that he only had the priests participate in the renovation of the temple. And Herod himself kept all of the temple laws. He himself never went uh, into the temple courts, never went into the Holy of Holies, wanting to communicate this image that, that he was following God's law. He is going to make a plan to hold on to his power, but he wants to look good doing it. So what does he do in verse 8? After he calls the, the wise men to him, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. wants to maintain this air of religious conviction. Oh, oh yes, I, I too am, am about pleasing God and, and worshiping his king. But Herod could not stand the possibility that the baby might grow up to be a man. Herod hated the baby Jesus because he didn't want Jesus to become king. And he was willing to do whatever it took to protect his power. Even if that meant the wholesale slaughter of little boys. Verse 16. Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region. Herod couldn't stand the idea that there might be another king that might grow up and take his place. Herod's problem was simple. Herod didn't want Jesus to be king. That was what's wrong with Herod. It was very simple. Jesus can't be king. And that helps us to see, really, what's wrong with us. You know, the... The spirit of Herod is, is still alive and well in our day. There, in the, the last several years, there, there has been a significant increase in, uh, in atheism in our country. The majority of people still believe uh, in the existence of God, but the number of people who believe, say they believe in God is, is shrinking. And that there is a, a new atheism that's rising up, and it's, it's a militant form of atheism. Uh, Pastor uh, Douglas Wilson describes their general outlook this way. The new atheists will say, God doesn't exist and I hate him. But even among uh, atheists uh, who, who hate God, that, that's not the, the end of the spirit of Herod. There is a, another spirit of Herod that, that's also growing in our country 
there's, there's people that are, are happy to, to say that, that they believe in God, that they may even call themselves Christians. But uh, sociologist Christian Smith, he did a, a survey of, of millennials, especially of the, the religious beliefs of, of millennials. This was uh, a study that was done back in, in 2010. You may have heard some of the findings of this. But, uh, but Christian Smith, he, he discovered that, that among millennials that, that claimed that they believed in God, that, that would even claim to be Christians, many uh, of these millennials, the majority of them actually, said that, that they believed that, that basically God wants people uh, to be well-behaved, uh, to be happy, but he's not ultimately involved in the day-to-day operations of the world. And uh, Smith kind of described this corruption of Christianity, saying that, that the prevailing religion among millennials is not biblical Christianity. It's what he calls moral therapeutic deism. Moral, God wants us to be nice. Therapeutic, God wants us to be happy. Deism. God isn't really involved in the day-to-day aspects of my life. And if this is the prevailing belief of what it means to have a belief in God, then there is going to be a growing hostility to the message of Jesus. Because if this is your idea of what it means to believe in God, then you are not going to have tolerance for Jesus' words, when he says things like Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Unless there's this massive revival, then we should expect that within our lifetime, there is going to be an increasingly growing hostility to Christianity. That the, the spirit of Herod will, will continue to thrive unless there's a transformation through Jesus. There's going to be more weeping because of Jesus by those that, that follow him. There's going to be more weeping in our country because the spirit of Herod is going to continue to prevail. But we have a hope that the families in Bethlehem didn't have. The families in Bethlehem, they, they thought Herod was winning. They didn't know how the story goes. They thought this was their chapter and this is how it ended. But, but we know that, that God protected Jesus. We know that God delivered him out of the, the tragedy in Bethlehem and, and he grew up to become a man and that, that he demonstrated that the power of God and that that he went to the cross, but even in his death, that he defeated death by coming alive on the third day. That even in the midst of the, the spirit of the age, this, the spirit of Herod, we can have hope because we know how the story goes. But there's also an important aspect for us. That the spirit of Herod is not just out there beyond the walls of the church. That the spirit of Herod is alive and well in every one of our own hearts. Inside me and inside you, there is a little King Herod that wants to rule. 
there's a little King Herod that doesn't want Jesus to be king. Now, I know that, that, that there's some of you that may be thinking like, now, now wait a minute, Herod, he, he slaughtered little baby boys. That, to, to compare me to Herod is like comparing me to Hitler. I, I, I would never do anything like that. Well, one of the things that, that we have to wrestle with, we really have to grapple is that, that if you don't want Jesus to be king, if you don't want him to rule, then under the right circumstances, you can hate just about anybody. And just a reminder that when, when we compare ourselves to King Herod, we say, I, I've never murdered anybody. We have to hear Jesus' words. Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. So let's be clear, we're I'm not saying that, that anyone in here is going to end up doing anything on the same scale as Herod. But the difference between him and me, the difference between him and you is it's only a matter of degree. We experience the same inner turmoil that Herod experienced whenever our own security is threatened. We arrange life. We, we, we work to arrange all of the things in life that, that we can have control. And then God comes in and, and he wants to, to do something different. He wants to rearrange all of the furniture that we had in, right in the place where we wanted it. And that's when it's revealed, wait, that's what it means for Jesus to be king that's what it means for a baby to be born in a manger and grow up to be a man. Oh, I'm fine with the baby in a manger, but I don't know if I want Jesus to be king. Here's how it's worked out in my own life. Even this week as I was reading, uh, doing my personal Bible reading, I, I was reading in, in Job 31 and and Job's kind of talking about his own life. And, and I realized as, as Job's talking about the things that he's done, and I rec- there's, there's things on that list that I, I recognize, oh, I haven't done that. And, and I'm quick to confess those things to the Lord. I'm quick to confess certain sins to the Lord. And you know the sins that I'm quick to confess to the Lord? They're the sins that I don't like. They're the things that I don't like about myself. And so I'm quick to confess those sins to the Lord. But then there's other sins that I'm not so quick to confess. I don't know that I really want to confess those sins. I don't know that I really want to repent from those sins because that means my life has to change in ways that I don't know that I want it to change. I don't know that I want Jesus to be king. Maybe the same is true for you. See, the problem with us, the 
the problem with Herod is the same problem. We don't want Jesus to be king. But I don't want to leave us here. Because the words of Isaiah are true. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On, the, on those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So I want you to see that what's wrong with, Jesus, what's wrong with us means that there's something right with Jesus. And when you're willing to admit what's wrong with you, it makes what's right with Jesus so good. Is it a, who loves the search and rescue team the most? It's the person who knows they're lost. And so here's what's right with Jesus. You know, this story reminds us that God is way bigger than the, the greatest human rebellion. Here is Herod marshalling all of his power to destroy God's plan, and he's unable to do it. That even in, in the midst of this tragedy, in some way, this massacre in Bethlehem was part of how God was going to save the world. That God was going to save the world through tragedy and rebellion. That this was part of a, the, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah. Verse 18, uh, this was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. That Isaiah 45, verse 7, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. What's right with the Lord, what's right with Jesus, is that He truly is in control of all things. But it's even better than that. Because the wise men came searching for the one who was born King of the Jews. You know, the next time that title comes up, it's at Jesus' crucifixion. This is where Jesus becomes king. As he is on the cross, Pilate commissions the sign to be nailed above Jesus' head that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Think with me for a moment. What would have happened if Herod had won that day? What would have happened if, if he would have been able to, to find Jesus and, and kill him as a little baby? You know, Jesus would have died innocently. Jesus would have died sinlessly. But God needed to do something more than simply have his son die an innocent death. He needed to do something more than just have Jesus die without sin. We needed Jesus' obedience. We needed Jesus' submission. Philippians 2.8 says that Jesus became obedient to death. See, the good news of the gospel is not simply that Jesus died sinlessly. It's that Jesus died obediently. It's not simply that, that Jesus died without sin. It's that, that Jesus died in submission to his Father. That Jesus laid down his life for you. Jesus is a king who will lay down his life for you. Herod is a king who will take life. Jesus is the one who takes death on himself in order to give life. John 10, verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me. Why? 
because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus willingly submitted himself to you so that you could be forgiven for failing to submit yourself to him. That Jesus is a good king because Jesus is the king who serves. See, Jesus died that that imposter king in your heart might die. And Jesus came back to life that he might give you a life under his kingship where hope never dies. You know, Jesus is bigger than our rebellion. That Jesus is stronger than our power. That Jesus' hope is better than our agenda. And so the words of the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, are true. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. How God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. No ear may hear him coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we must be humble before you that we are so often guilty of asserting our own will instead of surrendering our will to you. Thank you for giving us Jesus, who though he was worthy of all worship, though he was worthy of all power, humbled himself and laid down his life for us. May we surrender to him as king and know the hope that he gives forever. In Jesus' name, amen.